0: Like a Bigfoot podcast, I'm your host Chris Ward, and this is the podcast that wants you to get outside. Sometimes that means facing the alarm demons and throwing on some warm clothes to head out to the trails at five in the morning when everything in your body is telling you don't do this. (laughs) And then other times, getting outside means pursuing an idea that might seem ridiculous when you first bring it up and that brings us to today's guest Peter Majarik, and today's story which is the genesis and the follow-through on the idea called American football I hope I'm saying that correctly you soccer fans out here American Football is a documentary series. You can check it out on YouTube right now on Kick TV. Uh, I believe there's nine episodes of varying length lengths. They're all about 10 minutes long though. Um, and in each episode it it focuses on a different country and tries to tell the story of how soccer has influenced the culture in that country so for example episode one is about um tijuana and it's about a soccer team in tijuana that a lot of uh, americans living in southern california traverse the border and go across and watch this soccer team um, another episode there's there's a really great one in Colombia where uh Peter and 3 of his friends basically the people making this documentary series meet this blind soccer team. And not only do they meet the team, interview the team, really do a great job reporting on the team, but they a couple of the guys like actually put the blindfolds on and play soccer with them. And it's awesome, it's super inspiring from a film nerd perspective. It's beautiful, the cinematography's great, the shots they were able to get are, are just absolutely beautiful and I feel like they really captured the spirit of each country they went to. And so, what I wanted to do while talking to Peter today is I wanted to hear the story behind the documentary. Um, you know, how they came up with the idea For the project? What were the nitty-gritty details involved in actually making this project a reality? How did it change all four of their lives after making it? And one of the ideas I've really found fascinating lately is the idea of unexpected outcomes simply from chasing a whimsy. So following a curiosity, With no expectations whatsoever, except for your passion for following that curiosity. And usually when we do this, if we're brave enough to do this, some positives will come from it. Whether the positives come from our complete and utter failures, and we learn from those experiences, or something unexpected comes along the way. And we talk about this a little bit in the podcast, because... After they got done shooting this documentary, coming back to the United States, a lot of very positive opportunities have basically come because they were brave enough to put themselves out there, quit their jobs, travel through Latin America, and create their own content and create their own documentary. And that is so inspiring to me because so many times we come up with these ideas of we should totally do this. But not, there's not enough times where we actually pursue it and we actually put in the hard work to pursue one of our ideas. And through the American football process, my buddy Peter and three of his friends really put in some i mean incredibly hard work over 4 months traveling 7000 miles through 8 different countries but it paid off in the end and you know going into the project there was a lot of unknowns there was unknowns of whether or not they could afford it whether or not they could actually make it to Brazil to go to the World Cup and they looked at those unknowns which were definitely obstacles as positives, these are positive things to help them grow as filmmakers, and it's really inspiring. So once again, you can go on YouTube right now, uh, Kick TV on on YouTube, and then go down to American Football. It'll show you their nine episodes through their journey. Uh, I also linked a few of the episodes on the blog uh, on LikeABigfoot.com for this week's episode. But I really want to get into the episode, so uh, without further ado, this is episode number 14 of the Like a Bigfoot podcast with my friend, Peter Majarik. All right, can you uh, can you give a brief explanation of the American Football Project?
1: Okay, so American football was born in the 2010 World Cup. Uh, me and my friends had just graduated college, and we all stayed in Boston an extra month just to watch the World Cup. And we had a blast uh, doing that, and then we kind of made a pact right then. We're like, let's go to the next World Cup. And that was four years later in Brazil. Yeah. And so a couple of years after we made that suggestion, we kind of started thinking, well, let's do this. Let's make a documentary. It kind of became this conversation that was ongoing. And then we were all in Los Angeles together. And we just like, we're like, let's do this. Let's make it happen. And so we just spent a lot of time planning it out, trying to figure out what we'd do, what the stories would be. And then we just said, yes, let's do it. So we raised some money, uh, got some angel investors and put, quit our jobs and everything and just took off and just kind of jumped off the deep end.
0: Nice, man. Uh, so before we get into like the nitty gritty details of it, we're, you're a filmmaker, And were these other guys filmmakers?
1: Yeah, so we are all buddies from college. So um, I was kind of the producer, the organizer, uh, filmmaker. Then my other partner is a journalist. Um, So he went to school for broadcast journalism. And he spent a year in Colombia right before we left. So he had the most Spanish experience and also the most journalism experience. Uh, The other guy is a, a writer by trade. Um, but he's a soccer nerd, like a soccer <laughs> encyclopedia. Uh, um, so, so Pete was the guy that's a journalist. Sam is our soccer encyclopedia. And then our fourth member kind of came on at the last minute. He's our film, like our, our director of photography, like okay. the guy that filmed it. His name is Austin. And he's just a kid that we knew in college, not super well, but he's a very, very talented shooter. And if you watch any of the American football stuff, his work kind of speaks for itself. Dude, so that was kind of the four of us. It looks amazing, first of all.
0: And second of all, that's like the perfect confluence of people because is Sam the narrator?
1: Pete is the narrator. Pete's so the it's narrator. all told through Pete's uh, perspective.
0: Okay. I mean, dude, yeah. it. I, I just rewatched all of them over the last two days to prepare, obviously. Yeah, And um, I... I guess when you first described this project to me, probably like a year before you went out to actually do it, I didn't expect it to be as journalistic as it was. And the episodes are really really interesting because you're finding these super cool stories in all these different countries and you're telling telling the I don't know, telling the story of how soccer affected affects the people in these in these areas. Um Yeah. So, was that expected? Were you? Did you expect it to be that, like, story based, or did you expect it to more be a documentary about your trip?
1: We went into it thinking, okay, as a soccer culture in the United States, like, we don't really have a story defined yet. We're still writing our own story, and Latin America is crazy about soccer, and. Uh, Latinos are becoming a bigger and bigger part of our population and our soccer culture here in America. So the whole point of the documentary was let's go down there and learn from them what it means to have a vibrant soccer culture and then apply it to being a fan of the United States at the World Cup. That okay. was kind of the concept. So we went into it trying to find stories in each country that that showed what that culture is about and what's something that we can take away as Americans to apply it to our own soccer culture. Um we kind of had the thought that whatever stories we find are going to be much more interesting than us. (laughs) And, um, I kind of regret that perspective a little bit because now looking back, I'm like, man, I wish we were in it more. I wish we did more thing. I wish we kind of showed our own journey a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, each story, most of the stories were kind of planned out before some stories we just found when we got there.
0: Can you give Uh, an example
1: of that? Yeah. So like when we went to Bogota, which is the capital of Colombia. We just read this article about these blind soccer players that played in this park right next to where we were staying. And so we just called up the journalist that wrote the article, and he gave us a contact, and we just showed up and did the episode. And It's probably the most inspirational story that we found, and that's one that we just kind of stumbled across.
0: That's what I was going to say. Is that the most popular one? Because when I think about all of your episodes, that one
1: definitely stands out. Yeah, definitely. The, and the other thing I was going to say about all the episodes is we really tried to make these stories about people. And soccer is just kind of our vessel or our, the lens that we're looking through. So it's much more about culture. It's about connection, passion, love, hate, pain. It's about those things. And it just happens to have soccer as a theme. There, it was never meant to be like, oh, here's a bunch of soccer, cool soccer stuff like the see. And what I didn't expect, but what i found is that people that even have no connection to soccer at all connect with the material because it's a, there, there's a human component to it. And that's something that I really liked. Um, the blind soccer one is one of the most inspirational because at its core, it's such a human thing. It's overcoming adversity. It's having a passion for something that no matter what, like you're going to do it. I mean, these guys can't see. And when you think about how important Seeing is to playing soccer, just the, the idea that they have overcome that is amazing. So the ball that they play with makes noise. Uh, it's like five a size. They play like in a hockey size rink or smaller. Uh, the goalies can see. So the goalies kind of direct the players, but these guys just have such an intrinsic touch on the ball and they use their ears to hear and like they paint this map of this field in their mind as they're playing and they play the game without being able to see and our two characters put the put blindfolds on and join them and it's just it's just such an amazing thing to see that somebody would love something that much that they would go through all that trouble just to be able to do something as simple as playing soccer yeah
0: and one of your buddies gets schooled that's my favorite part
1: yeah so i mean this this guy that the main player he like perfected a bicycle kick <laughs> and a bicycle kick is not the right word that's the word in spanish bicicleta but it's like a you grab the ball and you like, throw it over you, behind you, and then it lands in front of you. And you kind of go around the player in, in the process. And so he teed up our player. like, Peter, Peter. He's like, what? And then he just schooled him right there. And we got it on tape. And it's, yeah, it's definitely a special moment. I can see perfectly and I can't even do that move. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: awesome, man. What, what, uh, what other stories kind of came up unexpectedly?
1: Um. So then, on the other, actually, the other story in Colombia we had planned out, it's about this team that has a huge fan base, and it was run one of the biggest drug cartels in Colombia. If you're watching Narcos at all, uh, it's the Oricuela <laughs> family from Cali that's uh, featured heavily in the second season of Narcos. Um, so this team in the 80s was really powerful, but it was all funneled by drug money, and so they had a really big fan base, but because they were basically a money laundering machine for the drug cartels, the Clinton administration put them on this list It like, banned them from being able to have bank accounts and all this kind of stuff. And so the team went down to the second division, had all these sanctions against them. Um, but even through that, they still have crowds of, like, 30,000 people. And they're still in Columbia's second division, which is a really small division. Like, Columbia's first division is pretty small. And so this team has been trying to get back to prominence. Um, but the whole time, the fans have kind of kept the club together and the fan base is amazing and so we got there and like we didn't get any media access to the game or anything and we just kind of showed up and started asking people around and in in Latin America there's these ultra fan groups called baras, which are kind of like mafia style groups and they have very big clout within the club and we kind of weaseled our way into those guys and they like snuck us in past security to like the, the most epic part of the stadium And we just showed up to that game having no way to get in. And we ended up getting, like, the best access we could have ever dreamed of. Uh, So that was totally unplanned in that sense. Um, But then, like, Costa Rica, which is one of my favorite stories, is about this white Mormon guy from Utah, businessman, that moved to Costa Rica with his family. And that one of the biggest teams in in Costa Rica was having big-time financial troubles. And so this group came to him and said, hey, do you want to buy this team? And this guy is from America, doesn't care about soccer at all. And he ended up buying this team and, like, bringing them back to prominence. And now he's, like, the biggest soccer fan ever. So he totally caught the bug in, like, the biggest (laughs) way. And um, that was a totally – like, that's a story that we prepared, we researched, we talked to him before we even left on the trip. Um, So that was one that we kind of had planned out. So there's definitely a mixture of both, but that's – Good journalism is like that. Like yeah. if you you want to have a story planned out before you do it, but you also have to be uh, available for the unexpected, and so it's kind of a mixture of those two.
0: Yeah. Um. In the Columbia episode, that was the only time, at least that you showed in the in the series, where people weren't really thrilled that you were filming them. Mm-hmm. Did was did you were you scared at all? <laughs> were
1: you intimidated? Um, I mean, that was probably the least, I don't want to say safe, but the the part we really were, like, we were so, mainly because I I call myself Sergeant Safety, I was always honest and never lose anything, never, like, put ourselves in danger, like, we traveled for four months, it was just four of us, and we had probably $50,000 worth of equipment, and our lives, and we're Americans who barely speak any Spanish in the continent that we're not very familiar with, so we really, really tried hard to be as safe as possible. But that was a situation where we just like kind of put ourselves out there and I mean we kind of we definitely t- we definitely dialed it up in the episode. It was yeah. kind of like that but not quite like that, but we got hooked up with the main dude, like the leader of the Bada.
0: That always helps. And once lot. we
1: had his blessing everything was cool.
0: Yeah.
1: And so um That was kind of, before we got that, we kind of were a little bit more hesitant to shoot. But once we got his okay, then we were shooting. But not everybody got the memo. So that's when we got a little bit of confrontation. But they're like, no, they're cool, man. The the Don said he's fine. And they're like, okay, all right. (laughs) That has um, to, dude, that has to feel pretty cool. (laughs) It was crazy because, like, the security there is intense. They have, like, dogs and, like, SWAT teams to check every single fan as they go through. And it was, like, really intense. And they didn't want us to film or anything. And then they just, like, walked us through because we were with the main guy. (laughs) <laughs> and it was, it was just crazy that this guy like even had like ends with the police to get us into the stadium. So it was that was definitely a, a real moment. After that, we were like, how did we do that? But yeah, why did he um, accept
0: you? Why did he accept what you're doing?
1: Yeah, he was just he was just like we get such a bad rap, and we're not ashamed of anything that we do, and we just want our we just want to tell our story. And he just from the get go like trusted us, which which speaks a lot to him. Because a lot of those guys are very kind of closed off. We did a story about Baras in Argentina, which is probably the most intense episode. Um, And that's the other side of that coin. So, like, Baras are known for, like, creating a cool party in the stadium, making a really amazing atmosphere. But they can also be, like, a really bad member of society and violence and death and drug trafficking and that kind of thing. So, I think he wanted to show, like, we don't do those things. Like, we're here just to support the team. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it was definitely surreal. Yeah.
0: Wow, man. So tell me a little bit about um, Tijuana. That was the very first one. And after rewatching it, I forgot how awesome that episode was. That was like the perfect way to start. I thought it was because people have this misperception. Well, maybe not a misperception, but they have a perception of Tijuana, maybe correctly, <laughs> as the most dangerous place on earth. And I mean, you guys definitely bring that up, but you also show a side most people don't
1: don't hear in the media yeah absolutely i mean when we released it like trump's wall comment just kind of came out and so like borders were a big topic and like mexican americans in general was a big talking point as well and we just wanted to show that that all these places like you have to remove the stigma to really experience a place and, I mean, I live in Des Moines, Iowa. If I drive five hours to the south side of Chicago, like, that's a super dangerous place, too, and that's right next to me. Uh, so we wanted to show that um, just because a place has a stigma doesn't mean that that's necessarily, like, the, the most honest representation of it. But also, one of our characters t- says it in the story. Like, if you go to a certain place in town in any big city and you're looking like a tourist, like you don't belong, like, you're going to be in danger. Yeah. But if you're smart, if you're respectful... Uh, If you can speak the language, even that helps, then like you're going to be totally fine. And at no point did I ever feel like we were in any kind of danger while we were there. Um, And what we wanted to do with that story is show like this is the busiest border crossing in the world. And it's so not a big deal. Like if you're ever in San Diego, you should definitely go to Tijuana because it's a different country, different culture. The food's amazing. If you're a soccer fan, on the entire trip, it was the best soccer that we saw was the Mexican league by far better than Major League Soccer as far as, like, quality on the field. So you can just, like, drive your car a few miles, go to a different country, have an amazing different experience, see an awesome soccer game, and go back and stay in your hotel in San Diego. You know, it's, like, such a cool place so close by. Um, But I think a lot of Americans think of Tijuana as a place where you get, like, botched plastic surgery or you go to, like, strip clubs or whatever. And there's that there. I mean, that's definitely part of the allure of Tijuana. Um, But there's so much more to that city and um, we just kind of wanted to show that this is a place that people are proud of and excited to be a part of and one of my favorite stops on the whole trip. It really was a really, really fun time. Who who was that super fan? Uh, So his name is Marty. He's like a surfer dude from San Diego that like is the least stereotypical soccer fan you'd ever expect. (laughs) And I don't know how he got hooked up with the team in Tijuana, but he just started to love it. And he would, he goes to all the games. He has like buddies that are there and he like leads this group called, he's a gringo Cholo. Cholo is like the fans of the team and he's a gringo. So he's like kind of the representation of all these white fans across the border just to go to games. Wow! And it, it kind of shows the power of soccer to break down borders, break down barriers and connect people of different cultures, different languages, different backgrounds. And that's kind of what the World Cup is all about, and that's another thing we wanted to be a theme in the whole story. Is like soccer is one of those things, like food and music, that like connects all of us together. Yeah. And in the sports world, it's very unique in that way. The Olympics kind of do that, but the Olympics is so segmented, and it and- has a lot to do with money. You know, if, you know, people from the middle of nowhere, Africa, aren't going to be skiers or whatever. But everybody plays soccer. Every from every country, every socio-economic background plays soccer. And so we kind of wanted to show that the power of the connection of the sport.
0: Why do you think it hasn't caught in the U.S. In the US then? I have um, a theory, but I want to hear yours.
1: <laughs> I would argue that it has, to be oh, honest. Yeah? Okay. And, and a big part of our goal as to do, doing the documentary was to show Americans, look how cool soccer can be, and it can be in our country like this. And when we got down to Brazil for the World Cup, we saw all this footage of people like in Chicago and New York and Boston, like 10, 20, 30,000 people getting together to watch world cup games, like in public squares. And I, I remember thinking like, wow, it's like, it's kind of already happened like without <laughs> us even putting anything out like this already happened. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, it already has arrived in a big way, but you also have to put it into context. Like we're addicted to sports in America and we have so many options I mean we have the best sports leagues and in, in like, Football, obviously nobody has football in America, but basketball, baseball, hockey, those all have huge tradition and a lot of fan base, so it's a very cluttered sports uh, yeah. market. It's very saturated here in America. That's one thing. The second thing, like Major League Soccer is our league. It's a really good league. It's the top 10 league in the world, and it's only 20 years old, 22 years old now. I mean that's such a new thing. It's like such a new iteration of soccer in America. And it's really starting to take a grassroots growth. And it's already very popular. A lot of people go there. there. We ended up doing a lot of work with Major League Soccer after we came back from Brazil. And there was a playoff game last night in Montreal. There were 70,000 people at the game. I mean, that's to me, like that is soccer has arrived. Um, but the third reason, and the reason why I think soccer is gonna just keep getting big and big and big, is that kids always played soccer as kids. Always. But Mm -hmm. then it wasn't cool, and so they started playing baseball or football or whatever. (laughs) But now soccer is cool in America. I went to my brother's bar mitzvah a couple years ago. I remember I saw one NFL jersey, and I saw 10 soccer jerseys. That's true. It's like soccer is cool now, and so those kids that have played from a young age will continue to play in the high school and continue to play in the college. And so our talent pool in the next 10, 15 years is going to get better and better and better, and then we'll have better results in the field that will – Result on better MLS on the field product and it'll just grow and grow and grow. So I really I really think it's arrived And it's only going to keep growing. That's, yeah, that's my perspective
0: Well, I guess I'm thinking back to when I was teaching middle school you would see kids in soccer jerseys all the time and I remember having kids in homeroom and they would just go on YouTube and look up crazy soccer videos And I guess when we were growing up that wasn't available So if we wanted to see soccer I mean, you'd have to turn the TV on to ESPN at, like, 1 in
1: the morning. <laughs> totally. And, like, I'm a, I was born in the former Yugoslavia, so I'm European. that's my, my heritage. And so I've, I've always been a soccer fan, even before I moved to America. And when I was a kid, yeah, the only time we could watch soccer consistently was on ESPN. It was Champions League, which is kind of like the most prestigious club competition in Europe. And it was on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at like 1.45 in the afternoon, and that was yeah. the only time you could watch. My team Arsenal's playing today, actually at one forty-five. But yeah. anyway, if you wanted to watch anything else, you have to like get like weird, crazy, illegal streams, and they were choppy. You have to have like a hundred-dollar a month cable package. Now, like any league around the world, you can watch. Like we in America have the best access to the English league of anybody in the world. Like if you have NBC Sports, you can watch your team always, and that's. It's made it so much more accessible. And so I think that's why soccer is also catching on. Um, but the challenge is that soccer is so popular and there's so many different products of soccer to consume that a lot of Americans have kind of skipped over major league soccer and they only watch European soccer or they only like their teams or whatever. And so it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a segmented fan base. And um, that's, an, that's going to be another step in the evolution of the sport here in America is kind of bring everybody together. Um, but it will become more and more prominent in the national landscape and the national sports landscape. Like it still isn't in that sense, but from a grassroots level, it has a really, really strong foundation. And I think it's only going to grow. Okay. Um, is there a Latin American version of
0: the soccer mom? <laughs> Cause that goes into my theory, man. Hear me out real quick. So when I think about soccer for kids in the United States, I think about like right up the street from me, there's a complex of, man, I got to show you when you come out and visit, it's like 30 soccer fields, right? 30. And if you drive by on a Saturday, it's crazy. It looks like a festival or a fair and there's billions of people out there and there's just parents like surrounding every inch of the sideline, right? And mm-hmm. then you got the kids in the middle of playing soccer and it's just really, really Almost structured to the extreme, like overly structured, right? But then, I guess, and I haven't been down there, so you got to tell me if this is true. When I think of soccer in other countries, especially what I've seen from from your series, and most likely smaller towns, I think of unstructured play for kids, right? And it might represent... The freedom from their parents like now they're playing soccer in an open field there's no parents around they kind of have to figure out how how to interact with each other without you know the helicopter parents circling around them i mean is is that is that true or am i just off base a bit
1: no i think you're totally on point and that's that's kind of another part of this discussion too Every, a lot of other places in the world, if you, everybody plays soccer. And if you're good, you're going to get a chance. In America, soccer is a very um, cost-prohibitive sport. So if you have money, you can play. Because there's tournaments and fees and this Coaches. and that. Yeah, and it really puts a huge barrier to a lot of people. If you don't have money, you're not going to be able to play. And it's, that's, that's one of the biggest problems at the grassroots level of the sport. That mixed with the whole helicopter parent, soccer mom thing, for sure. Um, so I think it's definitely gonna take giving kids that aren't white, that don't have a lot of money, giving them the opportunity to succeed uh, is gonna be a, a, another one of those steps in the evolution of the sport from a grassroots point of view here in the country. Okay. So I think you're definitely spot on. And we interviewed the most prominent journalist Uh, English-speaking journalist in Brazil. His name is Tim Vickery, really brilliant, brilliant guy. He's from England, but just just listening to him talk for an hour was one of the best parts of our whole experience. And he even said that from an outsider's perspective. He goes, until you get rid of paying to play in America, like for kids, like you're never going to take that next step because you're just taking out so many people that could be really talented and you're not giving them a chance. So and that's a cultural shift. I mean, here in the suburbs of Des Moines, I mean, every single suburb has their own soccer club, and they're very protective, and they're very like crazy about it. It's like mafia style almost. Yeah. It's kind of creepy. It's like, guys, this is a kid's sport. Like it's just to have fun. Just not give them to, a ball
0: and let them run around. Yeah,
1: it's not to control your kids. And so there's definitely part of that in the culture of soccer here in the states for sure. Yeah,
0: because I feel like like kids will become passionate about things that they're not forced into and things that are freedom. I mean, I see it when I, when I teach like adolescent kids, man, when you give them a little bit of freedom, they buy into it a little bit more. And I feel like if we just gave kids a little more freedom in the soccer realm of things, they might buy into uh, pursuing it a little bit. You know, you don't, they won't lose that passion for the sport. And I guess if I'm thinking about like grassroots, I'm thinking about basketball, like You'll see kids playing basketball and there's no parents hovering around them or anything like that. It's just they found a court, they found a ball, and they're just figuring it out from there. And I think there's a big positive to that that we're kind of missing out
1: on. Definitely. I never thought about it in that respect, but I think you're totally spot on. And I think that you'll see more and more random Soccer fields popping up, or just fields of grass and people playing. I think in the past that never happened. I think now it's starting to. Okay. I think in the past it was only like your big soccer complexes that you're describing. Um, but like I said, the more the now that it's cool. Yeah. Like when you become a young teenager, like being cool is the most important thing. <laughs> and so you didn't want to play soccer because it wasn't cool. You played out a, of a sport. Now that it's cool to like soccer, I really think there's in the next ten years, fifteen years, this is just going to be this huge upsurge of talented young players in the country that decided to go to the soccer route instead of other sports and with like football with all their head trauma and that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of other factors I think that are involved in that. Yeah. Um, But I, I think the future of the sport is really bright. But I also, like I said, when we started this tangent, I really think it's already arrived. Like it's already in a really good place. If you love soccer and you live in America, you have a good situation. Like you're in a good spot. And it's only going to get better. And the cool thing about it is that like, we get to define as a culture what our soccer culture is like. Like, We get to decide what that looks like and how that story is written. Because in a lot of places like Brazil, for example, their, their heritage in soccer is so strong. It overshadows everything all the time. There's no space to kind of write the next chapter they're always under this weight of their history and their place in the world whereas as in in america like it's a it's a blank canvas and we can decide what that looks like and that's really what we wanted to do with american football is to show white hipster soccer fans in america (laughs) like yo look at lat look look at latin america and how many good and bad things they have going for them let's incorporate some of this in our soccer culture But also like let's connect with the Latinos that are in our country and that are fans of our teams and of the national team and make this kind of like cross-cultural version of what it is to be an American soccer fan. Because Americans bought more tickets to the World Cup than any other country. And a lot of that is because we have more money than a lot of countries. But the biggest reason is because so many other nations are represented by Americans. So, like, I might be from Germany, but I have an American passport, so I'm going to be counted as an American, but I'm going there to follow Germany. So this is a huge opportunity to connect with all these different cultures and make that uh, our brand of American soccer, this kind of melting pot that is a reflection of our culture as well.
0: That's awesome, man. Um, I want to hear a little bit about, like, the -the behind-the-scenes road trip kind of aspect of it, because that fascinates me, and... Like I said, I mean, your series is incredible, but you didn't explore too much of what you guys went through and I'm sure you had the footage, and I'm sure you had the stories, but maybe not the opportunity to edit to it edit it together or
1: anything like that yeah, so this you might want to edit this back to the beginning of your <laughs> podcast because it kind of sets it up a little bit, but we set out to make a documentary movie and When we we got an opportunity this summer to turn our footage into this web series because America was hosting a big tournament where all these countries were going to play in the United States. And so Kick, which is a YouTube channel that makes a lot of awesome soccer content, they approached us and they're like, we'd love to make this into a web series and kind of tie it to the tournament and basically give like supplementary material to each country playing in the tournament." And that's why we turned it into the web series. Gotcha. And so each episode of the web series is really meant to be like a standalone story that if you were to watch Columbia versus Uruguay on TV playing in Chicago, if you would have seen our series, like you have context of what those countries are like. Um, What we were able to do, and that was a good opportunity for us to get exposure. uh, We were able to keep ownership of all the material, even though, and we just licensed it to kick. So we actually got funding from them to finish our movie. So right now we're working on finishing like the feature film version of American Football, and that's gonna be much more our perspective. Okay. So the web series is kind of the journalism that we found on the trip, and the movie's gonna be more like our journey. Oh, that's So it's awesome. gonna be like smaller versions of each story kind of interwoven with kind of more what we experienced. Okay. Um, but predominantly, we did we did film mainly the stories that we found. Like we didn't want to make it like a reality TV show. Like oh, four friends on this crazy road trip. Like what's going to happen? Like we always <laughs> felt that the stories were more impactful than our story. Yeah. Um, but you know, looking back on it now, tears since we've been back, I definitely wish we would have prioritized a little bit more of our story and figuring out what that means. Um, but it was a lot of work, to be honest. Like, it sounds like a really cool trip, and it was. But we traveled for four months. There was four of us. We had to carry so much equipment. We were constantly on the move. You know, you'd stay somewhere for, like, 10 or 12 days, and you'd have to move again. Um, you're in a place where you don't necessarily know the language. So Pete spoke Spanish pretty well. My wife's from Ecuador, so I could speak a little bit of Spanish. But the other two you guys knew no Spanish whatsoever. <laughs> and... The, the cycle would basically be we'd show up at a place, we'd spend like two days preparing. So we'd be calling people, trying to set up our interviews, trying to figure out who we're going to talk to. Then we'd spend like five or six days filming. So we'd do interviews, we'd go to a game, we'd like do a cultural event, whatever it was. And then we'd spend the last couple days editing because we released episodes, like little short videos as we traveled, and also like preparing for the next place. So it was very exhausting. It was a very exhausting experience. I was kind of the team dad, so maybe it was more exhausting for me than anybody. You were known um, as the Gandalf, which
0: I wanted to ask you about.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I was the guy that had the, the money to make sure we got everything paid for. I had to book all the flights, book all the AirBbs, uh make sure we survived, you know, make sure we woke up on time, make sure that all that kind of stuff happened. Um, but it was, at, at no point did like our friendship come in, uh, like, was it in danger? Okay, like, we were really four friends, and it was a really intense experience, but one that we all uh, did together. And there was times, of course, the tension would arise. I mean, you're spending all day long, every day with four people in small quarters. I mean, things kind of get hairy sometimes, but it was, we really had a good time. Yeah. And I always tell people, like, we went out and partied, I think, four times, <laughs> or maybe five, in the whole month we were there. I mean, it was really a lot of work. Yeah. It was a lot of work, and we treated it as a business trip. Yep. Um, but it was definitely a lot of fun. Like looking back and watching some of the episodes, I'm like, oh, that was a good time." We're like, "Oh, that was a fun experience." Um, but yeah, it's just traveling is, is, is an intense experience. If you go on vacation for a week, just think about how tired you are. How, and then we did that for four months straight, just on and on and on and on.
0: Well, and, and I'm so sure definitely
1: kind of wears you out.
0: I'm sure the four months felt like a a year. Because when you're traveling, you're getting all this new stimuli and your brain's not really going on uh, mindless mode. You know, like if I'm if I'm doing my everyday routine, I can go on mindless mode for half the day, unfortunately. Probably not good, mm-hmm. but you can and it, the day seems to go quick. But when you're traveling and you're just taking it all in, I mean, I've gone on trips for two weeks and it has seemed like six weeks, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure by the
1: end of it, you're like, man, this has been forever. (laughs) Yeah, I was very tired. Um, (laughs) I I mean, if we would have just been traveling just to have fun and experience things, I think it would have been such an amazing experience, but people don't realize how much work it is to make a film, Yeah, just like physical labor, just carrying, like if you want to get a cool shot of a mountain, like sunset. You need to carry all this stuff up to the mountain. Then you got to set it all up. It could be windy or cold or hot. And you got to sit there and wait for 45 minutes for the, all the pictures to be taken to get that shot. And then you got to go down the mountain. Yeah. You know, so that was a lot of effort just to get one shot. And that's kind of what making movies is all about. It's a lot of just physical labor. And so we were doing that while also traveling. So it was kind of a double, uh, double tiring and also like I was dating my wife at the time. And so being away from the person you love for four months has its own taxation on it. So that was challenged me and another guy. We both had, um, serious girlfriends back in the state. So that made it difficult just from an emotional point of view, but also totally worth it because kind of gave you a reason and a purpose to do this. And, uh, my wife is from Ecuador and we had just started dating. So I wanted to show like, her parents and her family, like, oh, look at this guy and he's cool and he's doing this <laughs> soccer stuff. And he visited our country and told yeah. this cool story. So it gave me a lot of motivation for sure. Yeah. What, uh,
0: what other sacrifices did you have to make in order to you know, chase after this dream?
1: Yeah. So we all quit our jobs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I worked for a video production company here in Des Moines and loved my job. They they were just the coolest dudes to work for. I loved working for them. I worked for like four years for them. And I was like, guys, this is something that I have to do, I wanna do, and I'm gonna have to take four months and go and do it. And they were amazing and they actually gave me my job when I came back, which says a lot about them and how much faith they had in me. Um, but I didn't know that at the time that that would happen. I didn't know that'd be an option. So it, you, I really just gave up everything and just went for it. Um, and I think that in life, it's important sometimes to do that if it's something you believe in because it really puts everything else into perspective. Like if you really believe in something to give everything up, it shows you what's important. And it's we gave ourselves the world and we put ourselves out there and the world has been amazing during the experience and since it and so whenever I hear of somebody that wants to go on this crazy adventure or wants to do something like totally out of the box I always tell them do it because even if you fail in every way you can possibly imagine it's still going to be a worthwhile experience and you don't know what's going to come out of it but it's going to be worth it because it's just it's such a show of faith and such a show of uh, yeah to do that and I think life always rewards you when you do that, even if it's not what you expect it to
0: be. Yeah, man. I'm kind of... Recently, I've been fascinated with uh, unexpected op- opportunities arising from someone just simply chasing their curiosity. And so, I just read this book called Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, and he's the uh, guy who cr- started up Patagonia. And I mean, his story is fascinating. He started off in high school as kind of a... I mean, I don't want to say, like, F up, you know? (laughs) But he started off as kind of a guy who... High school wasn't for him. You know, there's people like that. School's not for everybody. It wasn't for him. He couldn't find his community, his group of people. Um, And anyways, long story short, he ended up joining a falconry club, right? And so... He joins falconry club. I'm not even 100% sure what you do in a falcon League. I know you have a falcon. <laughs> and you go do stuff with that falcon. You, got, you make buddies with a falcon. And anyways, through this falconry club, he learned how to rappel down mountains because they had to go into the falcon's nests and take the eggs so they could raise the falcons from birth or take the chicks so they could raise the falcons from birth. And so he started rappelling. And then he became obsessed with rappelling. He's like, this is the coolest thing ever. You're going down this mountain. And then one day, he saw someone climbing up the mountain. And it blew his mind. He's like, you can climb up this stuff? And so then he got into rock climbing. Uh, Long story short, he started creating his own equipment. And he started his company that way. And then it led to him creating Patagonia, a really successful clothing company and outdoors company. And I mean... I'm sure if you asked him day one of joining the Falconry Club, if you were like, do you think this is going to lead to a multi-million dollar business? (laughs) He would probably be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know? And so what kind of unexpected opportunities arose from you guys just chasing this dream?
1: Yeah, well, to speak of what you were saying, I think the key factor of his story and story, and like that, is that they just went for it. They followed, and I would t- take the word curiosity and add the word passion. I think they're both kind of linked. If you're curious, if you're like passionate, if you have a connection to something, like trying to figure out what that means, I think is really important. But you're never going to have those unexpected results if you just do the same thing over and over again or you stay in your comfort zone. And, um, for us, what ended up happening is that we, it was a very direct correlation. Like we went out there put ourselves out and like from a business point of view, like things kind of took off for us. So um, we kind of became the experts in producing videos in the U.S. soccer world. So like we did a show with Heineken and Major League Soccer for a lot of years that basically explored like, fan cultures in different cities in America and how they relate to their like major league soccer team. And so we got to travel all over doing that. Um, Pete, my other partner, he worked for Major League Soccer for years So I work Nick, the guys that uh, licensed our website and that's where our web series house. And he's doing really cool things with that. Like he produced a documentary about English soccer for NBC. He was in Europe all the summer for bureaus for a project with ESPN. Um, I got to go to Italy a couple months ago to do a project with Puma and soccer. And so, like, we've just kind of been able to continue the this whole, like, soccer train uh, and making videos about it. And from a personal point of view, I mean, we got to experience a whole side of the world. So now, um, like, my wife's company is a financial company. They're looking to expand into Latin America. And so if we ever had to move there or had to do more work in Latin America, I would be totally comfortable and excited about that because of the experience that I had. And with documentary, a little bit because you, you have something you can show like, Hey, I did this adventure and here's the result of it. Like it's like a visual representation of what I experienced. Um, That's definitely led to a lot of doors being opened Um, But even if it's not that direct, I think that anytime you go on an adventure and you really just put yourself out there, like something unexpected and positive is going to come out of it. And you're going to look back and be like, wow, now I know why I joined the Falconry because I got to start this amazing company, you know. But the first step is the the most critical one and one that takes most faith. Yeah, man. Um, I'm
0: kind of losing you a little bit right now. Sorry. Here, let me, turn
1: the, let me turn the video off. That'll help. Okay, cool.
0: I can edit this part. This is, is my editing skills.
1: <laughs> is that better? Can Dude, you it?
0: yeah, it's so much better. It was only like a couple minutes okay. there where it was cutting out a bit, but I don't want to interrupt okay. your amazing train of thought. <laughs> That's good. So, I can try and repeat it more succinctly. <laughs> uh, nah, man, we're good. Um, Yeah, man, I just I love that, and I love – that that happened for you because, I mean, I'm sure when you first started it, it was terrifying, quitting your job and leaving your girlfriend and all that stuff. I mean, did you, did you have a little inkling of a thought that something, unex- not unexpe- something good was going to come out of it, obviously, because you're making this film? But did you have a little thought that something even better that you didn't even know was
1: coming was going to happen? I had faith. Uh, I, I believe in God. I, 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 that's a big part of my life. My, my, the spiritual side of me, and certain doors were open that allowed this to happen. And if those doors wouldn't have opened, it never would have even been an opportunity. And so once I knew we were going, I was just really excited to be like, all right, God, like here is I'm putting myself out here and doing this, and you've given me this opportunity. So I'm kind of putting myself up, and I'm going to let you figure out what's going to come down.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was very, like, preoccupied with the minutia of being safe and getting everybody through. We made a budget before we left, and we came home $100 under budget six months later. You <laughs> that's know? amazing. And so like, so that, that's probably one of my proudest feats in the whole experience. <laughs> um, we had one thing stolen. It was a lens, and it happened in a World Cup game really? after a game we were feeling a shot and we were tired and we just put the lens down and I was distracted talking to somebody that I ran into that I I knew. And so in the most secure environment, we were in the whole trip, which is the world cup stadium is like the one time that like we had a security (laughs) lapse. So that was kind of ironic too. Um, So I was really focused on those things, but I knew like from a spiritual point of view or from like a more existential thought that like, this is something that, is difficult and i'm putting myself out there and like good things are gonna come i just knew i had no doubt about that what those would be i don't know and so i was blessed to have that perspective but even if you don't have that even if you are really afraid because i would definitely had reservations and i had fears um it's that first step it's that first step that takes a lot of faith and just embracing the fear and going forward anyway that's all it takes. And everything after that, once you're moving, like you just adjust and you get to the end and you realize why it all happened. But it's that first step that's the hardest one.
0: It is, man. It's the beginner mindset too. You don't it's so uncomfortable to do something new or something that you're not used to. And and most people aren't comfortable with just being I mean, I guess it's different for you guys because you were a filmmaker and stuff, but I mean if if someone's trying a new hobby, for instance, they're not comfortable to doing the first step because, because they're going to suck at it. And most people aren't comfortable with sucking at something. But by taking that first step, you'll get a little bit better that day and then a little bit better the next day and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm sure the first day of your trip, you guys might have been running around like chickens with their heads cut
1: off. Is that true? yeah for yes. sure i mean we definitely had no idea what we were doing and like none of us had done anything like this like even though we all like soccer and had some experience in media like none of us had ever done anything like this and so it was a huge learning experience i remember the first especially in mexico and costa rica like we would alternate one day we'd be like this is awesome this is great the next day we would be like what are we doing like this story doesn't make any sense like how is this going to come together at all? And then the next day we'd be like, Oh, this is great. Like it was such a roller coaster. And then by like the third country or fourth country, we kind of found a way to ride the wave and even out. So it definitely takes experience to get more and more comfortable with something, but it's just every day you do something, you're going to get better at it and more comfortable with it. And then you're like, Oh, it's no big deal. Like that thing that stressed me out the first day, like I'm totally good with now. Yeah, it just takes that faith that like that's gonna happen, and the dedication to persevere.
0: Nice man. How uh, how did you guys raise money for this? I, I'm trying to remember. Was it Kickstarter or was it um, the other one?
1: <laughs> yeah, so we used IndieGoGo. That's it. Which okay. Kind of like Kickstarter. Yeah. And um, probably won't do that again. That was definitely an intense experience. That's what but I wanted just to ask you beg- about. How? I mean, that seems so difficult to even
0: you spread the word. I guess.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of work, and you end up relying on a lot of people that you know to start it off, which is great. But it just kind of I didn't like constant, like begging or asking people that I knew and cared about and respected to like give me money. Like That part of it, I wasn't a huge fan of. But then there's all these people that we did know or didn't ask that supported us a lot, which is really awesome. So there's kind of a dual dynamic. We got a little bit of media exposure that definitely helped. So we raised about a third of our budget through Indiegogo. And then we raised another third like with our own money and different things like that. And then the last third we got from a couple really big kind of donations, I guess, um, that really put us over the edge. So it was kind of a mixture of all those three things and it wouldn't have happened without any one of those pieces. Um, But it's hard. Like raising money for something like this is definitely like the least fun part about it. And we were able to raise just enough to go on the trips. Like none of us got paid. We didn't, we did it all like for the fun and the passion of it. Uh, we just spent all the money traveling. So just, it was just four people staying alive for four months, is what that money got us. So,
0: yeah. What, uh, what kind of food did you eat? Did you, did you got to eat often or was it all like peanut butter sandwiches?
1: Uh, no, we're the three of us are really big culinary people. So, uh, peanut butter sandwiches wasn't going to cut it, but we usually, um, We stayed in Airbnbs just because it was cheaper, but also it's just more—it's just a better situation to be in an apartment with four people than in a hotel room. Yeah. And so we cooked a lot, like we go to markets. Like food is pretty cheap down there if you cook it yourself. So we did that a lot. And then um, we also ate out a lot too. Like a lot of places in Latin America, it's like five bucks you get like a three-course lunch, like oh, soup, man. a main meal, like a dessert, salad. So. Um, I think we had like a hundred dollar a day budget for all four of us combined for food. What and culture we, had the best food? Oh, Colombia had amazing food. Colombia had really really good food. Uh, Chile by far had the worst food. Really? Yeah, Chile was not. Chile was our least favorite spot, and I'll. We went to a beach town in the middle of fall, which was our own fault for doing that. Um, <laughs> Because we kind of didn't realize the whole, like, in South America, the seasons are completely opposite. To us. Oh, yeah. So we went there, like, in, in like, May, and we're like, oh, this will be great. And it was like, they had just shut up everything. It's <laughs> like a tourist town. It was cold and windy, and everybody was miserable. Um, and Chileans have a Spanish dialect that's super impossible to understand, so that made it harder, too. Um, but it was in the point of the trip where, like, we really didn't want to do anything. So we kind of just got to chill, hang out. We watched a lot of Game of Thrones, just yes. kind of hung out for a week, so that was good. <laughs> um, Argentina, we were in Buenos Aires, which is the capital. That was my favorite city that we visited, and okay. they are very European because like a lot of Italians and Germans live there, um, and their food was amazing. They had such good food, so I would say Colombia and then Argentina were probably my two favorite food spots.
0: Nice man. What? Um, well, I guess you kind of already answered this. You said. You and your wife, since your wife's from Ecuador, you could see yourself moving there. But besides Ecuador, what would be a culture
1: where you could see yourself living? I could live in Argentina for sure. Okay. Uh, Buenos Aires is just a really special city. If you ever get a chance to visit it, I highly recommend it. It's just an amazing place for a lot of different reasons. So definitely live there. I would live in Ecuador uh mexico is amazing too like mexico city we were there for a couple days that's a really cool place so i would i would live in probably mexico ecuador and argentina for sure okay nice
0: well i want to keep you in the states but you know
1: (laughs) i want you to move to colorado
0: yeah uh, i'd do that (laughs) uh how did um did your friendships change with those guys at all positive definitely
1: so, like, the three of us were roommates, me, Pete, and Sam, like, kind of the core, in college. That's how we met. We were just random roommates. And after that trip, like, we really became brothers. And we were really close friends before it, but you, you can't go through an experience like that without creating a really special bond. And then our fourth member, Austin, who was our shooter, we knew him but not super well. And so after that trip, like, we were obviously all really close. And we got a chance to work on a couple more projects since then, and it's just this unique bond that we all have, that we all share, that experience. And I think as more time goes by, I have even more appreciation for it, because I'll like, watch an episode here and there, or like a video, and remember that, and remember that experience and how unique it was. And it's something that I'll always have, something I'll be able to share with my kids and grandkids. Like, this is what Grandpa Peter did when he was young. And so. <laughs> Um, it's something that we'll always have, the four of us, that experience.
0: Yeah. What about uh, your relationship with soccer? How did that evolve?
1: Yeah. So I was a big soccer fan, like a European soccer fan, and since then I've really become more aware of soccer in the U.S. and soccer in Latin America. But I, what I like about it is that I can go almost anywhere in the world now and strike up a conversation with someone because I just have a much deeper understanding of different cultures as far as they relate to soccer or like I'll see that my team signed a player from like Ecuador I'm like oh I know where that is I know the, the club that he played for I know the story of their country and how they came to be a soccer nation like they are today and so it's given me a much greater depth of understanding um which has been really helpful for me that's awesome I man. love it I love it more than ever I mean it's <laughs> it's such I've always loved the sport. But to see how much you can learn about the world through soccer has made me love it even more. It's really a unique thing. Like, we love Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. And he was a big inspiration for us. And he uses food to kind of experience the world. And we tried to use soccer as our vessel to experience the world as well. And it was the most welcoming and dynamic travel experience that I ever had. And it was always all because of soccer.
0: I mean, you could do the world in food, music, sports, I think. And then you could get a pretty good understanding of of someone's culture. Which I remember Definitely. you pitched it to and me that, as that. You're like, we want this to be kind of uh, no reservations except with soccer as the, as the f- cultural focus.
1: Yep. That's, that's what we tried. We're obviously not quite as... Um, uh, what's the word? We're not Anthony Bourdain by any means, but we definitely took that that formula and tried to apply it to our experience. Yeah, man.
0: It was great. It was it was honestly, man, I'm a big believer in just supporting your friends no matter what they do. And because because of you, like you honestly were the proof to me, like this is why you support your friends. Because then they'll create some awesome stuff that you'll be entertained by, uh, let alone, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs>
1: Yeah, which is cool. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. And I remember you were like not the first or the second uh, Indiegogo supporter, so you were first in line, and I I I appreciate that. I remember when that happened, and that means a lot. I mean, any dream or anything worth doing takes a community of people. Uh, It's virtually impossible to do anything alone. And um, I'm glad that you believed in us from the beginning, and I'm glad that you feel like you got your your money's worth, dude. In the end, so
0: way more than my money's worth. It's so awesome. <laughs> but uh, so can I make a suggestion? Yeah. European football next.
1: Yeah. So that's <laughs> in the works. Shut up. Um, Is it really? Yeah. The I'm definitely. I don't think any of us want to do the same. Uh, financially the same way of doing it (laughs) raising money and doing you know doing it on our own backs but what i would like to do is because the next world cup is going to be in russia so what i want to do is visit all the eastern european countries on the way and do the same exact concept but kind of make it more like dark and sinister and like former soviet union and so we'll go to like romania and ukraine and and Yugoslavia and those places, and kind of explore those cultures, which I think as Americans we know very little about, Dude. and uh, kind of do it on the way to the World Cup in Russia. And even Russia itself has a, a myriad of topics that we could explore. So it's something that we're thinking about, and uh, if we can find the right partner, I think we definitely want to do it. All right. So
0: every every four years, wherever they go. So where are they after Russia? Do you know? It's in Qatar, like in the Middle East. Oh, dude, there you go, man. And then eventually they'll be in like Australia. You'll be you'll be all over the place.
1: Yeah, as long as as long as people are want to see it and want to pay for it, then we'd love to keep doing it. That's oh, for sure, dude. I just got so excited. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: real quick questions. I'm just curious. Um, who's
1: your favorite filmmaker? Ooh I love David Fincher from like for narrative yep. movies. I think he does really, really good work. Now remind um, me he did seven. Is he that guy? He did he did seven. Fight Club. He did Fight Club. Yeah. He did Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. That's right. He did Benjamin Button. Um try, I'm kind of blanking on other things that he did. But he's he's very meticulous. He's known for doing like ninety takes per shot, which is insanity. Um, oh he did the
0: social network.
1: He did social network. Yep, that's right. Um, but he um, he just finds a way to craft a story in a really great way. So I respect him a lot uh, from a narrative film point of view. I don't know if I have like a favorite documentary filmmaker, but for like movies, I think he definitely does the best. He did um, Gone Girl too. Oh that yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So as someone who's working on a scripted show now, are you are you for the ninety takes meticulous? <laughs>
1: No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Even if ten, 10 takes is a lot. Cause here, so, yeah, I'm working on a TV show right now uh, that they're filming in Des Moines. What's it have It's called Play by Play. Okay. I think that's the working title. But it's basically um, it's like an eight-episode TV show, uh, kind of like Happy Days. So it's set in the 90s in high school. And this, this kid, he's like a tiny kid, wants to be a sports star. But he ends up being like a sports writer. And it's narrated by his older self. So like the older version of this teenager is like narrating his his high school story. And it's funny, like it's 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 just a fun show, great scripts. Um but it's the first time I've worked in narrative film. So when we did American football, for example, we had two cameras. There was basically two of us filming at all times, and then two people like in front of the camera, or sometimes it'd be three people doing, you know, setting things up. This show has 50 people on the crew. So we have two cameras, there's fifty people. So like everything is just this big moving machine, and it takes an hour to get one shot set up, and then you do it ten times, and then it takes another hour to get the next shot. So we'll work like twelve hours a day and we'll get five minutes of footage. Like like at the end of the day, you shot five minutes of the show. And so it's just a whole different world. Um, where when you do something more documentary style, you're taking reality and you're capturing it in the most compelling way you can. And then you craft the story from that. Whereas narrative, every single thing from the script to the shooting, to the editing is meticulously thought out and made to be exactly how you want it to be. So there's totally a craft in each of them. Um, but what I like about documentary is you can kind of be a little bit more agile uh, but what I like about scripted is that you can really get exactly what you want and what your vision is. And there's something really cool about that. So, Yeah, man. Uh, what was I going to
0: – man, what <laughs> – I'm just trying to wrap my head around 50 people working together and how, how that – It's insane. I mean – and it, It's insane. It must work smoothly. I mean there must be like a chain of command and uh, – Yeah,
1: I mean, we all have walkie-talkies. There's a whole protocol to everything. Um, Every department has their own function. And the way that it works, which can be frustrating but it's important, is that everybody's specialized. So if you need to move a plant that's in the way, that's the set department. So you can't (laughs) touch it unless you're in the set department. But if it's like a toothbrush that somebody picks up, now that's the prop department. So the set person can't touch it. The prop person has to touch it. If there's a light that needs to be moved, then you need the grip to do it. You, you can't move it. Like the person that's responsible for the light needs to move it. And so everybody has their one little thing that they do or their, one, their, their specific responsibility, but you can't get outside of that. You have to just focus on that one thing. Um, so that, that's how the whole machine turns.
0: Yeah, so what's so. your, what's your uh, title and your
1: responsibilities? Uh, So I work underneath the assistant director and the assistant director is the boss of the whole shoot. Okay. So like the director and the writer and the director of photography, they're like the creative guys. The assistant director makes sure all the wheels turn. So I'm between him and all like the production assistants and all the departments. So I just make sure that things keep happening. Uh, So it's a lot of communication. Um, It's a lot of organization. It's a lot of just like, all right, here's where we're at. Here's where we need to be. Let's make it happen. So you're like the Gandalf of that, also. Oh, um, I don't know about the Gandalf. I'm playing more like a, a like a, like a, I don't know who I would
0: be. I'm trying to think. I'm no. trying to recall my Lord of the Rings knowledge. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I'd be like uh, the captain of the Rohirrim or somebody like that. That's probably who I'd be.
0: <laughs> what's uh, what's what uh what's your favorite book? I know we all we talked about Game of Thrones like at length during a whole mountain climb one time.
1: Yeah, I love Game of Thrones. That was a fun world to be in. I don't know about favorite book. Um, my favorite movie is Forth Gump. That's the best movie ever made by far. Yeah. not even close second. my <laughs> uh, favorite book would be tough. I don't know if I could pick up. I'm okay. reading a historical novel series about ancient Rome right now, which I'm loving. It's like Game of Thrones, but real, yeah. say in Roman times. And I'm, I'm definitely digging that. But I don't know if I have a favorite book. That's cool. I do love to read, though. So...
0: Yeah, man. What? uh, I mean, do you mostly read? I know you read a lot of historical stuff,
1: but do you read fiction, nonfiction? Um, I'm a big fan of The Economist, the magazine, so I get that every week. So that takes up a lot of my reading time. And then, yeah, I like to read good stories. And then I also like to read historical nonfiction. Those are kind of my two favorites. Uh, But yeah, I, I read War and Peace this year. So that was a big undertaking. That was amazing. Um, so it's been a lot. Of, I, I do love history. That's my favorite subject. So but usually the world that I stay in.
0: All right. Well, if you had to pick one period of history to live in, what would you? Where would you live?
1: Um, if I could take like disease and all that out of the yeah crazy. yeah yeah of
0: course. And you'd shower regularly, obviously.
1: <laughs> I think like the mid eighteen hundreds would be really cool. Okay. So like right before the Civil War. In both Europe and in the United States, I think would be really neat because technology has advanced to a point where you can kind of globalization was just starting to happen, but there was everything still moved at the speed of you know horses, and so I kind of the trains were just about to start to take off. So it was kind of in this really amazing point in history where everything was just about to take off. So I think that would be really fun.
0: Yeah. All right, man. Last question. Where in the world would you go
1: that you haven't traveled to yet? You're a pretty big traveler, man. Yeah. Um, I've, I've done Europe and now the Americas pretty extensively. I really want to go to Vietnam. Okay. Like I really want to go to, like, Southeast Asia. Um, I just think that would be a lot of fun. I can blend in almost any culture that I visit. But in Southeast Asia, there's no way a tall white person would blend in at all. So I think that would be an interesting cultural experience to be completely out of my element. But that would probably be the next, if I could choose that and Australia, New Zealand. And then I think I'm done with the world. I think I'm, then I'm just going to stick to what I know, I think. But, what about Antarctica? No, it's too cold. <laughs> I just spent three days filming outside, 12-hour days. So I'm uh, <laughs> the last
0: thing I want to do is be on the cold. Awesome, man. Well, dude... First of all, super good catching up with you, and we should do this more often. Absolutely, not necessarily on the podcast, but
1: <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's an honor that you would consider me to to be worthy of interviewed, and I hope that I I uh, got some good stuff down for you and your listeners. But I love podcasts too, so it's this is my first podcast interview, so nice. it's an honor for me. You knocked it, you knocked out of the ballpark, or well,
0: thank you, Chris. You kicked it into a goal there you go all right thank you guys for tuning into the podcast today uh if you want to check out some of our old episodes you can always go to likeabigfoot.com that's kind of where we put the blogs and the episodes there you can find us on soundcloud if you type in like a bigfoot or the easiest way which in retrospect i probably should have started by saying but whatever we're all learning here uh, the easiest way is to go on iTunes, uh, like a Bigfoot podcast, and uh, just just click subscribe, and they'll just pop up on your phone every week, which would be awesome. So yeah, that's where you can find us. Um, this was episode 14, so we have 13 other really great episodes ranging from you know talking to someone about setting a world record on burpees, to people who have ran 200 miles, to people who have ran their first half marathon or living out of their out of their truck and trailer., um, you know, meditation retreats, movement coaches, all this all this crazy stuff., uh, I'm really excited. I think i've I've been able to get like a really uh a really diverse, you know, diverse guest list so far, which is awesome, in honestly the most selfish way. It's just awesome for me. Like I I'm benefiting probably more than anybody just by having these guests on every week and being able to have hour-long conversations. Um so yeah, so thank you for tuning in. Once again, you can check out all the American football stuff on YouTube under Kick TV. All the episodes are awesome. You can watch them all in an hour and a half. It makes a good little documentary for you to for you to zoom through and you'll learn a lot. To be honest, I'm not even a huge fan of soccer, even though Peter's kind of skewing me towards that, Um, but the stories, the stories are just so personal, and they just do such a good job capturing a culture, and I am a huge fan of like travel shows, and this is a great travel show just based on uh, the love of sports and the love of soccer more specifically, so, yeah, make sure you guys check that out. It's it's great. Make sure you support uh, anything American football is going to do in the future. Um, I know I will. I'm a huge fan of Peter and a huge fan of everything he, he works on. So, so, yeah, make sure you do that. Next week we're going to have on someone who is in the most competitive field of any job I can really imagine except maybe like actor Or musician and I'm sure there's other jobs that I'm totally forgetting here but it's all good but uh, he's in the career of college football coach and next week it's fascinating it's all about the struggle to succeed in such a competitive field so yeah so check it out next week um you know make sure you guys go out this weekend and go on an adventure Uh, maybe put yourself through the struggle. I know this morning I ran 13 miles in the mountains and you know what what I've done I've done that many times in the past but for whatever reason this morning it was a struggle and it took a lot of fortitude to even drag myself through those mountains Um, and I'm probably better off because I forced myself to do it. So so yeah, I'm encouraging you guys, whatever it may be. I don't care if it's going out in the mountains and running or you know, just deciding you wanna wake up early all week long. Which, by the way, if there's any habit, if you're feeling like you're stuck, where you're like, man, I just can't change my life right now, there's one habit that you can change that I guarantee you will change other things in your life. And that is to wake up, early. And you know, if you wake up normally, I mean, God forbid, if you're waking up every day at like 10 in the morning, you know, unless you have like a night job, I understand. I totally understand that. But I'm saying like, if you're just finding yourself in like a funk, and you're waking up at 10 in the morning, every single day, force yourself to wake up at seven in the morning. And I guarantee you, you're going to see other aspects of your life changing for the positive. So yeah, so that could be your challenge this week. Or your challenge might be to, you know, attend a new class. Maybe you want to do like a new dance class or something outside of your comfort zone. This is a week to do it. I mean, we're all waiting around until January so we can do our New Year's resolutions. Why can't we just start them now? Why can't we start in December? You know? So get out there this week. And I would love to hear from you guys. If you're doing some awesome stuff and you you have some good stories to tell, shoot me a message. Shoot me an email. I would love to to talk to you guys. I mean, the whole purpose of this podcast really is for me to sit down. (laughs) It's really for me to survive the year of being a stay-at-home dad, which I love and I'm enjoying so much but it's nice to have a side project it's nice to have something to do on the side you know that gives me something like it's letting me work out some of my creativity that i usually do because usually i'm a teacher um but i have a i have a three-year-old and a four-month-old so i'm staying home with both of them it's so much fun we have a good time most of the day (laughs) but it's nice to have a break and this is my break so it's kind of a selfish endeavor to get me get me through that and like i said it's it's really i mean it's so important for me to talk to people who inspire me and every single person i've had on this podcast so far has inspired me and i've learned a lot from them so i kind of went off on a tangent there <laughs> but that's okay because it's my podcast i go off on tangents Um, yeah, get outside this week. I don't know what else to say. Have a good one. We'll see you next week.